Another thing that is kind of unique, I think, the way that you think and makes a lot of sense to me is for you when you're acquiring a new asset, the terms you say are as important as the purchase price. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. You know, purchase price is always important. Everyone wants to sell their property for top dollar or their company for top dollar. But the terms are equally as if not more important in some cases. For example, I can pay you a billion dollars for your company if I can pay you over a billion years. So whether that involves some creative seller financing, maybe another means, um, terms are very important. This is Country Club Conversations. I'm Raj Tut, founder and CEO of Storyboard Living. This show gives you actionable insights from the hard to reach top percentile in business and entrepreneurship. I think everyone deserves this type of access and I'm bringing it to you. Welcome to the club. John, thank you for taking the time. You got it, pleasure to be here, Raj. You are a partner in Skyline Commercial Real Estate, veteran of real estate development, acquisitions, property management. You currently have 470,000 square feet of commercial real estate that's owned or managed. And you also make time to be a pilot. That's right. You nailed it. (laughs) Uh, Can you give me some background on how you grew up, where you grew up? Because I think you have an incredible story and also an incredible way that you think about life and business. So I'd be curious to hear how that was shaped and formed. Sure. Well, I grew up in Chesterfield and uh, as one of three. Uh, as the oldest of three. And um, my mom, um, long story short, she was a stay-at-home mom. And my father worked for a big, uh, big company, Monsanto. I'm sure most people have heard of uh, Monsanto. And um, my parents were both very hard workers. And um, I just really learned uh, the value of hard work um, at a young age. My mom, when I was probably in third or fourth grade, she had a uh, started a book fair company. So she was a librarian, um, library background degree in um, library science, and uh, she's always loved books. And um, so she started she started a book fair company, um, yeah, probably around when I was in third grade. And um, I learned the value of what it's like to run a small business at a young age. And uh, so I was my mom's helper. She probably did you know, 20 or so, maybe 22 book fairs at local Catholic schools, um, primarily private schools around the St. Louis area. And um, I was the uh, the helper that uh, she operated out of our basement uh, when she started out. And um, I always remember the nights before um, she had book fairs, I would help her load the uh, van to get set up and sometimes helped her set up and take down and I loaded all the boxes of books on a, uh, a trailer, pulled behind the tractor, and I drove the tractor from our basement uh, door up to our driveway and, um, and loaded up the van. And um, so I really learned uh, kind of those principles and what it was like and, you know, as far as hard work uh, to run a small business at a pretty young age. That's a really cool story. You said around 20-ish book fairs a year, and, and uh, I understand that's a small business, but that sounds like a lot of work. Uh, a book fair, I would imagine, takes a lot of time to set up and and then beyond the setup to run and then take down 
or or deassemble, you know, the setup, whatever it looks like. Uh, with those book fairs, was that uh, really a passion project for your mother or was that something that helped to really pay the bills at home? You know, I think it was a little bit of both. Um, it probably paid fewer bills than they would have liked it to. Um, but, you know, she learned a lot. I remember a lot of times she was up, um, you know, probably close to all night getting ready for the, um, you know, the book fair the next day. And while she was, you know, a mom with three kids at a young age, it's, um, it's, it's very admirable. Not many people can do it. And your first business was not in books or real estate, it was lawn care, correct? That's right. You got it. And was that uh, in high school or college that you started the lawn care company? Well, it was a little bit of both. Um, so I, um, long story short is, um, yeah, so I started uh, cutting grass when I was um, probably a freshman in high school, a little bit before I could drive, actually. So um, well, my first year of my little landscaping business, my mom or dad would drive me to the different lawns around the Chesterfield area to cut. And I probably, you know, started cutting three or four a week. Um, so I uh, always appreciated um, them always believing me, uh, you know, in me at a pretty young age in high school. But so I started cutting grass and then eventually got my driver's license. So I was free to go out and, um, you know, support myself a little bit more as far as being able to buy a trailer and a truck and, you know, the lawnmowers and cutting whatever lawns I wanted to and not being dependent on my parents. So what I did was I, I wanted to, you know, cut lawns within one specific geographic location in um, wealthier areas in St. Louis um, for a couple of reasons. One is I thought I could probably make a little bit more money there, um, cutting lawns with nicer homes. Um, and two is I wanted to learn about how, you know, wealthy individuals did it. Um, do they have a business? Do they have real estate? you know, what was the key to their success? So, you know, I was the uh, high school kid that went out and I put uh, my little business cards that I printed off myself in mailboxes and people would call me and then uh, knock on the neighbor's, you know, door next to their house. And uh, they would hire me and try to get as many lawns as I could within, you know, smaller geographic area in more well-to-do areas in St. Louis. And did you find that a lot of those folks were pretty generous in sharing knowledge or wisdom with you if you had questions for them? I did. Yeah, for the most part. Um, and, you know, what I learned, you know, I guess in high school, um, I, I ran this landscaping business all through high school and then um, my freshman year in college. Um, and I went to St. Louis University. Um, so I was local. And at that time, I was probably cutting between 35 and 40 lawns a week. So for a full-time student, um, it was a lot of work. Um, but I found that most of my customers, um, the lion's share of my customers in these wealthy areas, they were somehow connected to real estate, whether they had an operating company and, you know, invested in real estate uh, passively or they were full-time real estate, whether it was a developer or they had a holding company, uh, learned that um, a lot of wealthy people create and grow their wealth through real estate. Got it. And that's kind of like your first true experience uh, in the world of real estate was learning from those folks, right? Or at least the world of real estate investing? That's right. When you were in college, I'm sure that was a big kind of paradigm or mindset shift for you. So what were you studying? Uh, and if that wasn't real estate related, was that exposure to real estate the reason why you eventually got into real estate? Yeah. So um, I actually... Um, 
made a decision to uh, not continue college. So I dropped out of college, um, never finished my senior year, which we could talk about. That's probably one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. Um, but I probably started out in real estate, you know, uh, with a passion for real estate, um, reading the same books that you probably did, your rich dad, poor dad, and, you know, difference between an asset liability and kind of committed myself to, you know, rather than, you know, working every single day for a paycheck, i.e. cutting grass, um, I wanted to figure out a way to build assets. So um, I was working on a degree in business management um, and entrepreneurship at SLU. Um, so pretty much in line with what I thought I wanted to do. Um, but I had this unique opportunity to get involved in real estate when I was um, a sophomore in high, uh, sophomore in college and um, ended up running with it and making a decision that um, I'm going to take this opportunity rather than finish out uh, my college years. So my best friend's dad uh, was a doctor and he grew up in South St. Louis and he wanted to be part of um, a group that made old homes look beautiful again. And um, so long story short, he was my first money guy. And um, so I made a decision to exit the lawn care company, which my dad actually ended up taking over. He was kind of tired of the corporate world and um, was looking for a change. So he took over my lawn care company and, and bought one at the same time. Uh, so he had a little bit of a career change at the same time when I did. You know, so we, uh, you know, I was the college kid with a lot of ambition and a lot of drive. And um, I had a money guy who I, I trusted and he trusted me. And so went out and bought some shells in South St. Louis and your Benton Park kind of sewer neighborhoods and um, just um, learned through the school hard knocks uh, how not to make the same mistake twice. And I remember, you know, a lot of really hot summers. I was out there gutting these, you know, homes in South City, swinging hammers and really tried to learn from the ground up how to renovate a home. And then kind of along the way, we probably did 30, 35 homes together, um, which were all speculative. I thought, well, you know, these homes, they're 100, 130 years old in, in these South City neighborhoods. Um, and even if they have new guts, if you call it guts, maybe um, you know, it has new plumbing, it has um, you know, a new HVAC, all new systems, looks beautiful. But at the end of the day, it's still an old home. So I thought, well, why don't we try to build a brand new home um, that we can warranty that someone can come in and completely customize from the ground up? So um, with my money guy, uh, we started uh, building, you know, one spec home, two spec homes, and then two at a time, three at a time in those historic areas that were completely custom from the ground up. So they blended in with the historic streetscapes. You know, sometimes you wouldn't even know that it was a new home because uh, it blended in so well. And these South City neighborhoods um, are very careful as far as who they let build new homes. And there's a process you have to go through. And, you know, the windows have to be the exact, you know, right dimensions. You have to base your design on a model example that exists within the neighborhood already. So that was kind of my entry into the custom home building world. Um, and then, you know, we probably built, um, along the way I went off on my own and, uh, fortunately didn't need my, um, kind of doctor, uh, money guy anymore. And, uh, started building homes on my own, uh, a lot of stuff in South St. Louis, Lafayette Square, uh, Seward. I probably ended up building, you know, 30, 40 homes down there, brand new homes. And then we did, um, some custom homes in Ladue and Frontenac and, uh, other parts of St. Louis County. For context, uh, when you started 
uh, rehabbing homes in South City. Around what year was that or what time period? Um, that was probably, I want to say maybe 2000, probably 2005 or so, okay. maybe 2004. And then that uh, switch to new development, was that around um, 09, 10, somewhere around there? Probably around there, probably closer to, um, probably closer to 2007, 2008. Okay. Right before the how did How did the GFC um, impact your business at that time or some of your developments? Well, um, so we started out building specs. Um, so most people know what specs are, but that's when you build a home and uh, you find the buyer after it's built and hope they can pay, you know, the price that you want. Um, so there's a lot of risks associated with that, you know, a lot of borrowed money um, and a lot of, hence the name, speculation. So what I did around the time when I went off on my own is I would go out and I'd find the lots. Um, I'd take down the lots, acquire the lots in these you know, historic neighborhoods in South St. Louis, and I would, um, I'd pre-market them. So I'd buy the lot and I'd wait for the buyer to come, and then I would go through kind of the design, the bid, and the build process um, with the buyer. So it was a way to take the risk off of me, the builder, and shuffle it over to um, the customer. So um, I was actually able to acquire a lot of lots very inexpensively during the great financial crisis, um, fortunately. And in a lot of times, you know, we made more money on selling the lot to the customer than uh, the fee to build the home. I'm sure with you seeing those types of opportunities post GFC, that's really kind of um, found its way into your mindset in terms of your ability to be patient in more recent years and your ability to kind of wait for the right deal to fall into your lap versus being overly aggressive. Would, would you agree with that, that, that experience? Oh, absolutely. Helped? Yeah. So I'm, I'm fortunate that I really learned uh, a lot about what not to do during the great recession and um, in terms of borrowing money and managing risk, because as a real estate investor, you know, really your number one obligation is to manage risk. So, you know, learned a lot more about what not to do than what to do. Sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. With the rehabs, were you utilizing any um, historic uh, tax credits or anything along those lines at that time? Or were they available? Well, um, there were neighborhood preservation credits, kind of similar, but we, we never really did any tax credits. It was all just kind of market rate um, flips. And similar thing with the new developments, no, no uh, incentives? The main incentives were um, like neighborhood tax credits. There were some of those and then tax abatements back in the day when you could really get, you know, five to 10 year tax abatements for new homes and rehabs. Got it. The new developments in those neighborhoods, like you mentioned, Benton Park and Soulard, were you a pioneer in doing so at that time? I've, I've, I wasn't in St. Louis. Um, I moved here in 2013. So I've only seen these neighborhoods in more recent years, but I've heard from others that there were time periods where, you know, you might go a decade without seeing new construction in some of these places. So were you uh, on the forefront of some of that at that time? Well, um, I think I was um, part of it, but not all of it. There are quite a few people who, you know, built custom homes in South City neighborhoods before me. Um, but, um, I know I built the most homes in Lafayette square. You know, we probably did around 20, at least 20 homes in Lafayette square, um, which is, you know, one of the, one of the top neighborhoods in South city. 
Um, so, but had a great experience doing it. Um, a lot of kind of transplants from St. Louis County who, you know, they're coming from a, you know, fairly affluent area with a big, nice house, but they wanted to move to the city for a little bit more of a walkable lifestyle. You know, for example, they wanted a yard, but not a big yard. Um, so, uh, and they wanted a house equally to or nicer than the one they came from in West County. So a lot of county transplants who wanted that lifestyle. That makes a lot of sense. And Lafayette Square is a truly beautiful neighborhood. Uh, so when you went to West County with your uh, new new construction, custom home development um, company, that's ultimately where you decided to stop and no longer do um, custom homes, correct? Correct for the most part, yeah. We were doing, you know, custom homes in Lafayette Square at the same time that we were doing okay. it in the county, but um, but yes. Can you speak to why you exited that side of your business and focused uh, more on acquiring commercial real estate? Yeah, so, um, you know, building custom homes was really the perfect foundation for me, no pun intended, on getting involved in real estate. Um, you know, so it, it was a great, um, education for me to learn the process, learn how to build a, t- a house, learn how to, you know, work with customers at a higher level and, uh, work with architects and so forth, so forth. But, um, you know, it, it really wasn't who I wanted to be when I grew up. I always talk about who I want to be when I grow up, even today, because <laughs> things are always changing. But, you know, from the time it takes to buy a lot, uh, to find a customer, uh, to hire an architect and go through the architectural process with that customer. And then finally you have the product you want to build, then you send it out to bid a few times and make a lot of changes. Then you get the permits then build the physical house. Um, then you warranty the house. And even though if your warranty is one or two years, you know, the customer is going to call you for five years. It just became, um, a poor use of my time per hour. And that was around the time um, when I started to um, uh, get involved more in the investment side, which is where I knew I wanted to eventually be. So the home building allowed you to build the capital to get into the investing side. And you said uh, early on in the conversation that dropping out of college was a good decision for you. And is that because you were able to take advantage of that opportunity to start building new homes and gain that experience to get into the investment side? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I wouldn't have had the jumpstart that I had in real estate um, if it wasn't for this unique opportunity. So, like I said, it was probably one of the best decisions I made in my life. And, um, you know, I think a lot about, you know, whether I would advise my kids. I have three kids. Um, I have an 11, an 8, and a 4. So I think all the time about, you know, what am I going to tell them? Um, And, you know, we're living in a world today where, you know, the days of, you know, got to get into a good grade school so I can go to a good uh, high school so I can get into a good college and find a safe, secure, well-paying job and retire with that company and, and be safe. Or those are behind us. Um, not that they don't exist, but they're few and far between. So I always wanted to try to control um, my destiny rather than have a company do it for me. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so you've mentioned three kids real estate investing, and then we know you're in brokerage and management, um, it, and you're a pilot. So it takes a lot to balance all of it. Uh, I know you use leverage in your life, whether it's debt for real estate, which you're conservative with, um, your team, 
So you have a, a team that's helping you achieve your business objectives. And then you're also using uh, leverage in the form of other people's experience, mentors in your life. Can you kind of speak more to how you've gone about crafting the life that you want to live and, as you put it, try to become the person you want to be when you grow up? Yeah, man, that's a great question. You know, I really try to be a dad first. Um, and it's easier said than done. There's no perfect, uh, you know, rule book to do that. But, um, you know, you only have so many years with your kids when they're young. And uh, I knew that I wanted to do everything I can to have as most time with them as possible, yet still be able to provide and run a company. One thing that um, I did that was very helpful to me is I was able to figure out a way to um, work four days a week um, instead of five. So I don't work on Fridays. And when I say I don't work, I'm always available. Um, I'm not physically going into the office. I'm typically not taking appointments, but um, I'm always accessible. I'm always on the emails. But, um, you know, real estate has always been attractive to me because you can generate a huge amount of activity with very little staff. Um, and um, fortunately, that's been the case for me. We have a great management team um, that supports everybody and the properties we manage and myself. And I'm um, just very fortunate to be able to do that and, and invest time in my family um, and just try to really um, build my business around the family rather than my family around the business. I'm trying to do the same. Uh, it's tough, as you know, when you're building a company and also, you know, you have relatively young children. So for somebody that, let's say, has not been making family a priority, where do you think they could start? Uh, you know, maybe that four-day work week is, is a little too difficult to do day one, but do you have any thoughts on where someone could start? Maybe it's waking up early, for example. Yeah. So I've always been an early guy, an early riser. Um, I wake up between 5 and 5.15, and those early hours of the day are precious for me to be able to clear my head and focus and, um, you know, before the kids get up for the day. Um, you know, another thing I realized um, is that I'm not quite as important as I think I am. There's always someone out there who can do your job better, or at least the same as you, you know, usually better. Um, and just try to use that mentality to understand um, that you can rely on good people to support you rather than uh, feeling that you have to do everything yourself and the buck stops with you. Would it be fair then to say that you really try to empower people on your team to make decisions and, and take control of, you know, various responsibilities in your organization? Absolutely. You know, um, uh, relationships and people are everything. Um, and, you know, the management of real estate assets is extremely important. It's very easy to see um, the difference between a well-managed property by people who care and show up and answer their phones um, versus um, the opposite. Um, it's night and day in terms of, you know, your tenant base and the financial performance of a property. You have to have good management. Um, and we've worked very hard to hire people who, are, who do care and uh, who can bring that value to the company and the properties that we own. Another thing I realize is that, I uh, don't know if you've heard of the 80-20 rule. I think a lot of people have, but about 80% of your results come from 20% of your activity. So I really do my best. And again, this is not a perfect science, 
um, to live in that 20%. What, what is that 20%? Uh, what are the activities that lie in that 20% um, that will generate 80% of the activities? In your world, could that 20% be sourcing and negotiating uh, the purchase price on a new deal? It, would that be more along the lines of you know what you're getting at there? Absolutely, absolutely. Kind of the um, the team building side, um, the behind the scenes, um, and you know just thanking your employees and your team um, for doing what they do. Um, I like to be as out of the office as I can. Um, just uh, um, you know, meeting investors and uh, you know. Uh, people who are in the business and or maybe it's meeting with a, a major tenant and um, just growing relationships and seeking opportunities. When you say, um, you know, meeting a major tenant, for example, uh, I think your focus is office and retail and correct me if I'm wrong. So in your world, what would a major tenant look like? Yeah, so we own a lot of different property types. As our, our goal is to be as diversified as we can under the umbrella of real estate so that when things get bad, um, no one sector can completely take you down. Um, so we own some neighborhood strip centers. We own more creative office buildings. Uh, we own some warehouse, more industrial complexes. We own Dollar General stores. So we try to really... Um, spread that risk out as much as we can. We used to own a lot of multifamily, uh, which we've sold the majority of that. Um, but, um, you know, another thing that I learned um, on the investment side is that it makes the um, a lot more sense to keep the money in the deal. Um, we see a lot of investors who rely on the properties for their paychecks. And what I've always tried to do is, you know, treat each building uh, and uh, the portfolio as a, I call it a glorified 401k. So set it aside, manage it well, and pay down the debt as fast as you can rather than um, you know, leverage it up and rely on the buildings for the paychecks. Um, and I rely on my uh, you know, management fees um, and brokerage commissions as my, quote, paycheck, um, and really treat the properties right so that when we have our next recession, you're in a favorable position with the bank. And uh, every day the bank owns less and less and you own more and more. That's a good way to go about it. Uh, when you say, uh, you know, having the property act as a glorified 401k, would that mean excess cash is being kept in a reserve account? That way you can take care of CapEx as it's needed, maybe improvements if you want to sell. And then additional cash is just kind of sitting there for a rainy day? Is that more or less the way you're thinking about it? Um, yes and no. So you definitely have to have a reserve account um, for, for a rainy day, whether it's, you know, roof repairs, HVAC repairs, those big CapEx items. But all the money over and above what we think our CapEx reserve should be, uh, we pay down debt with it. And we pay down debt whether the interest rate is 3% or 10%. Uh, hopefully don't get quite to 10% anytime soon, Raj. But um, it's the principle of treating it like an investment and, and consistently taking the excess, if you're fortunate enough to have excess, um, and plowing down the debt. Wow. I've, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone uh, employing that strategy. I'm sure people do, but uh, I've just never personally uh, heard that before. So when you're getting new debt on a new acquisition, are you specifically 
mentioning to or working with lenders that will allow you to pay down debt as you see fit over and above what they're expecting? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, most of our uh, debt is with local banks, um, usually bigger local banks. Um, but you know, the community bank relationship, um, you know, typically they don't have any prepayment penalties. So we typically don't have any, you know, big HUD loans uh, that you see a lot of in the multifamily world, no CMBS loans that, you know, have those defeasance and uh, prepayment penalty provisions in it. So they, um, we make sure that uh, we have the flexibility to be able to do that. That makes sense. Um, another thing that um, is kind of unique, I think, to the way that you think and makes a lot of sense to me is for you when you're acquiring a new asset, the terms you say are as important as the purchase price. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, purchase price is always important. Everyone wants to sell their property for top dollar or their company for top dollar. But um, the terms are equally as if not more important in some cases. Um, you know, for example, I can pay you a billion dollars for your company if I can pay you over a billion years. Um, so whether that involves some creative seller financing uh, or maybe another means, um, yeah, terms are very important. Aside from seller financing, are there any other terms or a, a type of structure that you may try to play with in order to win a deal or win a deal on your terms? You know, sometimes we can get creative with, um, because we own the majority of our holdings, we can forego commissions. Uh, we could put commissions back into the deal um, and, um, you know, really work hard to keep our operating costs low, I think is a big part of it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, would the retail center that we met at, uh, Three Flags in St. Charles, which I think uh, was a deal you bought uh, around 2014-ish, is that right? Yeah, maybe 2014, 2016, somewhere in there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so would that deal be an example of where you got a little creative on the acquisition? Or can you kind of walk us through that deal? Because I think it was... Number one, a phenomenal piece of real estate, but number two, the story behind what you did to add value, I think was incredible as well. Yeah, so uh, I love talking about this building because it's really a great case study for a number of different reasons. So call it the Three Flags building. It was a uh, 60,000 square foot um, office retail center, three stories, first floor retail, floors two and three office. Um, and it was owned by a family. Um, father had developed, um, was one of the uh, pioneer developers in the city of St. Charles, right, where you cross the river on Highway 70. And uh, so the four kids um, owned it. And uh, father was still around at that point in time. Four kids owned it. Three were out of town and kind of saw it on their K-1 as a, as a liability. Um, and then uh, they had one local brother uh, who kind of operated the building. And we were able to purchase it off market um, at a very good price. You know, we were able to pay, you know, the family a good price based on what it was, but we knew where we could take it. Um, and it was kind of your classic mismanaged um, office retail building. The signage was dated. Communication was poor. Um, I think maybe it was probably 80% occupied, maybe uh, low 80s occupancy-wise when we acquired it. But we went in, we put in a lot of um, energy improvements as far as new HVAC units that are more efficient, uh, insulation. We rebranded the building. We built an, uh, an electronic message center that we sold advertising on and just used it as a means to advertise the building. And um, just kind of 
breathed some new life into it and uh, communicated and really, um, really tried to optimize every facet of it and take care of the, of the tenants. So uh, we owned the building for three years and ended up selling it to a group that um, had some hot 1031 exchange money and um, paid quite a bit of money for the building. And um, everything that we do, Raj, we do it for the long term. Um, so every building asset we buy, we plan on holding it for at least 10 years. Um, but there's an exception to every rule, uh, as you know. And um, so we made a decision to sell it after owning it for about three years or so. There's a couple of things here I'd, I'd really like to expand on. So one, you mentioned off-market. Um, can you share how that deal came across your desk? Or maybe if you can't share details, just high level? Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, it's, um, it's another thing I love about real estate because, you know, we have hundreds of tenants. Um, so we, we get to see, you know, hundreds of different types of businesses and ownership and, you know, who does it right, who doesn't do it right. And you learn about so many different types of businesses that you normally wouldn't be able to. So the way the Three Flags deal happened was um, a friend of mine who's a broker, he came to me one day, he said, John, I have an idea. It's a little bit crazy, you know, some family dynamics, but I want to at least put it in front of you. And, you know, it's not too dissimilar from how most of our acquisitions happen to happen. You know, usually they're off-market deals. Typically, you know, when they're listed, a broker's objective is to drive the price up as high as you can. There's a lot of competition. So we very rarely will we purchase a property that's listed, mainly because we like value add. Uh, we like to go in and we like to add value. We, we typically don't buy a building that is, you know, turnkey, ready to go, because we don't see the returns there. So um, it's just kind of typical off-market crazy idea kind of uh, uh, way it happened. So uh, primarily the broker relationship, right? That, yes. that uh, yeah. brought the deal to you? When you mentioned the communication with the previous ownership and the existing tenants, I'm assuming you were alluding to kind of like poor customer service. Uh, is that accurate to say? Yeah, that's accurate. You know, it's funny, and I'm sure you see this in your business too, Raj. You got to answer your phone. Got to answer, answer your phone. You got to respond to emails quickly. And um, it seems so simple, yet it's very hard for some people to do. And that's very important to us. And I think as simple as it sounds, that was one of the reasons why you know, we were able to do so well with it, just because of the communication. And that shows that, hey, the ownership cares. Um, we did have an on-site manager um, who was phenomenal, and she's actually still with the company. Uh, she runs our property management department right now. Um, when we sold that building, that was the number one requirement, is that uh, she comes with us. She's not staying that that really, I'm sure, speaks highly to her skill level. Uh, the communication piece is, I think, relatively easy to do, but so many people miss it. We see it all the time in the apartment space. You see it in retail, office, uh, industrial as well, I'm sure. I feel like, for whatever reason, that communication piece, when it's missed, is the number one reason why you might lose a tenant. There are other factors as well, but if you're not willing to take care of a maintenance request in a timely manner or at least respond to it, if you're not willing to get back to a tenant on a question about the lease or something along those lines, it really creates or 
helps to develop a poor landlord-tenant relationship. Uh, aside from communication, what do you guys like to do or what did you do at Three Flags to improve that landlord-tenant relationship and also maybe incentivize some of the tenants to move in or sign lease extensions, things along those lines? Yeah. So a um, couple things. One is, you know, whenever we buy a property, ultimately we want to raise rents. But you can't go in and you can't uh, do nothing and expect tenants to pay more in rent. Um, so the first thing we do is, you know, in addition to kind of your energy improvements, your, um, you know, appearance of the exterior of the building improvements, we, we want to do physical cosmetic improvements to demonstrate that, hey, we're new, we care, and um, put in those improvements, um, you know, before you, at, you know, make that ask from your tenant. Uh, so the physical improvements and the noticeable improvements are very important to us. And the physical improvements there were very noticeable. Uh, one thing I really liked was with the signage. It was all consistent. A, a, a very minor pet peeve of mine is when I drive by a retail center and you see all sorts of different signage, different colors, uh, uh, you know, just different formats, different materials being used. Was that a conscious decision to have the same type of signage for each tenant there at Three Flags? Yes. Yeah. So that's one of the first things we did that this particular building had some very dated, uh, you know, tenant signs on the, on the face of all the retail spaces. They had, uh, they were like green and red and ivy looking and just, uh, they're actually stained glass. So, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, they were beautiful, but they're not today. So we went in and uh, streamlined the signage. Um, I have a little bit of OCD in myself. So, uh, you know, seeing uh, consistency and um, clean lines is important to me. It makes it look, maybe this is the wrong term, but it makes it look classy. It yep. makes it look really good. Yep. Curb appeals big. Yeah, right. Uh, with the, the eventual buyer... The, the group that you sold the property to, uh, my understanding is they weren't able to run it as well as you. Do you have any insight as to why that might have been or any idea? This building's probably a perfect case study because it was mismanaged when we bought it. It was very well managed, a uh, turnkey operation when we sold it about three years later. And um, the company that purchased the property had some hot 1031 money. And um, they were more concerned with not paying the tax than um, running the property well. Um, so um, I think within six months of you know, the new group purchasing the property, the occupancy dropped from maybe the mid-90s to probably about 80%. Um, and the reason why just comes down to what we've been talking about. You have to answer your phone, your emails, and you have to care. And they did not ha have on-site management. Um, they did not answer their phones and, um, they even had situations where the power was turned off, um, cause they didn't pay their bills. Um, and, uh, long story short, they ended up taking a pretty massive loss on it. Although we, we actually tried to buy it back. Um, and, uh, we were outbid by another group who owns it today, but, um, just an interesting case study for good management. Good management and bad management. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That really truly highlights the difference there. I think it would have been really cool if you guys bought it back. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to. <laughs> uh, with the second and third floor being office there, um, 
Would you think about that acquisition differently? Or when you were trying to buy it back, did you think about that differently versus when you bought it? Because you bought it pre-COVID. I'm assuming it traded again post or during COVID. Um, yeah, so the office environment um, definitely did change within those few years. I probably wouldn't have thought about it um, any differently because we're so familiar with the property and the tenants and you know, we had a handful of dentists and I think a doctor um, in uh, the second and third floors. Um, so some stability there. And we had a lot of small businesses, um, a lot of small offices. So, you know, we've noticed a lot of people, you know, uh, during COVID and post-COVID, just um, they kind of made a decision that they were sick of officing in their basements uh, with the kids screaming uh, above them and they needed a small professional space and a good uh, good building. Um, so we did have a lot of small tenants that probably wouldn't have affected my decision very much. Got it. Um, I, it's interesting that you mentioned Dennis and things along those lines, because my my thought for office, you know, going forward is I think everyone's going to want a physical presence of some sort. But when you think about a dentist or some other user that literally cannot work from home, I, I see very little risk there and maybe, you know, there's mispricing on assets that maybe have those type of types of tenants in place. Uh, what are your thoughts on office going forward? If you have any that you can share, do you think we're going to see tons of deals and mispricing or are seeing tons of deals and mispricing to where people are overestimating the risk involved with office products or, or just what are your general thoughts? Yeah, so we have a handful of office buildings. Um, so we kind of went through COVID with most of these and post-COVID uh, and learned a lot along the way. But a lot of the office buildings we have um, are kind of your lofty, techy, creative type of environments that people want to be in. So you have to figure out how to differentiate yourselves and your building uh, from everybody else because, you know, as companies have... Um, you know, less need for square footage. Um, you know, it's a, we call it a flight to quality. So people are looking for smaller spaces that are nicer and they're willing to pay more typically per square foot for the niceness and for the level of finish. They just don't need as much square footage. So from the landlord's perspective, you know, you're going to have more tenants in smaller spaces that are nicer. So from a tenant improvement perspective, it can be costly from the landlord unless you're able to shuffle some of that tenant improvement burden to the tenant. But um, yeah, it's um, we've we've been uh, able to do fairly well with our office buildings. We have one um, where the occupancy dipped a little bit, and uh, in trying to think uh, outside of the box, uh, we decided to convert uh, about twenty percent of the building to a co-working space. Uh, with a company that um, I'm sure most people have heard of, Regis, um, to try to drive you know a little bit more traffic to the building, the right kind of traffic to the building, and really optimize the square footage of vacancy that you have. That's a great idea, and I appreciate you sharing that because I feel like a lot of the headlines are a little removed from reality. A lot of the headlines are doom and gloom for office, but anecdotally, any conversation I have, and I'm sure that you have, uh, the the reality isn't so bad unless you're in specific submarkets where downtown, for example, that's maybe getting hit a little harder. So most of your office is suburban, correct? Correct. Yeah, we do have, um, we have one office building in the city uh, on the hill. It's called the Fair Mercantile Building. Um, but everything, yeah, is pretty suburban. And the hill is 
unique for the city when it comes to office, correct? Because um, my understanding on that neighborhood is that it's a little more stable. The you know the there's a little bit of growth, and it's just it doesn't feel like you're in the city when when you're in the hill. Would right. that be accurate to say? Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. I love the hill. Um, so for those of you who don't don't know what the hill is, it's kind of the Italian neighborhood area in South St. Louis. And uh, very unique. Um, it's very safe. Uh, people tend to care more. Um, and uh, the building that we have on the hill is actually the largest office building on the hill. Um, it's about 70,000 square feet. Um, and, um, yeah, it's just one of those great, safe, walkable community-type neighborhoods. 70,000 square feet is a, is a pretty big building. So uh, I, I would be curious to hear the story on that one we, we won't go into as much detail as three flags but uh you know high level was that another value add type of deal yeah it was so that building is a story um not as good of a story or as long as a story i should say as three flags but uh we purchased that building about seven years ago um and there was a major tenant in the building an anchor tenant who had about 40 percent of the building uh long story short um, she vacated um, about a year, maybe six months to a year after buying the building. And um, uh, she vacated because she, she ended up committing bank fraud um, with a local bank and uh, falsifying invoices and so forth. So, you know, when we bought the building, it was humming like crazy, 100% occupied, uh, lost a 40% tenant, and we spent the next few years uh, climbing back out of it. And uh, tell you real, real quick what we did to climb back out of it. We, we put in some more improvements. Um, we marketed the building heavy, heavily, um, and we were willing to spend the dollars that it took to bring in the quality tenants that we wanted that, in that building, uh, of which you know the major tenant was not, uh, come to find out. So um, we also do a lot of things like, you know, solar panels, you know, on our full service lease office buildings where the, the you know, the savings from the panels uh, directly flow into your um, expenses. Um, and, you know, so we put a new roof on it, put uh, 100 kWs of solar panels on it to save money and um, really just tried to do the right thing and um, and not skimp on doing it. And fast forwarding to today, it's probably one of our best performing buildings. Um, and even though we had to invest a lot of money back into it, um, you know, it's far less than what the buildings were today and it's 100% occupied with a waiting list right now. That's awesome. Uh, the solar panels, have you seen a lot of success with that? I've kind of toyed around with the idea here and there on certain assets, but I've just never gotten past the what I perceive to be the risk of, will they actually perform as advertised? So it sounds like you've yep. had success with the solar panels. Yes, so I love solar panels. We've solared probably uh, four or five buildings and they work very well on you know office buildings with a big flat roof. You can angle the panels whatever direction you have. Sometimes it's a challenge where you know if it's a taller building with a smaller roof, do the economics make sense to put panels up there because your footprint's smaller, but um, you know, for your full service office buildings where, you know, you, the landlord, pay the electric bill, um, it's a direct savings. Um, and we've monitored the performance 
And, um, you know, the return really makes sense. And the payback period is around seven, eight years. So if you're planning on holding a building for the wrong, uh, for, you know, the long run, 10 years or so, they really make sense because they're, they're an instant uh, savings uh, on your electric bill. And if you put a cap rate on that savings, um, you know, the um, return on that investment far outweighs the actual dollars you spent on the panels. And is there a lot of uh, maintenance involved from the uh, landlord's perspective? No, um, very little. In fact, um, when the panels do need maintenance or a panel's down, um, you know, we're, we're plugged into the solar panel company. So they actually call us when there's an issue and schedule it to be fixed and coordinate with property management. So uh, it's a very light lift in terms of maintenance. Um, and that's a great example of, you know, ways that you can add value to a property without, um, um, you know, aside from the cosmetics, you know, the, the things you don't see sometimes are equally as important as the things you can see. Uh, for example, we have, you know, a few, you know, late seventies, early eighties office buildings that are very inefficient. And when I say inefficient, I mean, you know, typically your highest electric bill is peak summer, AC's cranking, you're drawing a lot of juice. Some of these buildings, um, they have these big dinosaur electric boiler systems in them. So we've noticed that um, they consume a lot more power in the winter than in the summer. Um, and a lot of the buildings like, you know, Creek Corps, Maryland Heights, Chesterfield, um, they were built as all electric. So some of these things don't even have gas run to them. Um, so what we've been able to do is we tear out the old dinosaur boiler uh, that's electric. Uh, we bring gas to the building um, and we put in a tankless staged uh, commercial boiler system so that, um, you know, typically they're, if you can imagine, you know, what a tankless hot water heater looks like in your house, pretty much the same thing, just a little bit more sophisticated and bigger. And, you know, typically you have two or three of these water heaters in series, you know, in your, uh, panel room. And let's say the temperature outside is 40 degrees, only one's going to turn on, you know, when it's 20 degrees, two are going to fire. And, you know, when it's two degrees this coming weekend, you know, you may uh, have all three working. So we've been able to reduce our electric expenses or our energy total expenses during the winter um, by 60 to 70 percent by doing this. And that's a way you can add value that's a permanent add. You know, it instantly changes the economics of a property. It's tenants can't see it. You know, maybe they can feel it a little bit with maybe the, you know, the heat's a little bit more balanced or the AC is more balanced. But, um, you know, the economic kind of energy improvements are just as important as the ones you can see. Thanks for sharing. Those are those are great ideas and tips. Um, when you are thinking about the boiler, for example, how are you running the numbers? Are you is it just a function of the savings on the bills versus your upfront cost and what when you apply a cap rate to that savings, you know, what kind of value you're adding. And if that's the case, do you have a formula or is it just kind of case by case? You know, um, the solar is very easy. Um, you know, it's easy to calculate, um, you know, pro formas based on, you know, your cost for electric and how much electric you consume. And you have the historicals of, you know, your last 12, 24 months of Ameren bills that you can grab data from. With the boiler systems, it's a little bit different. Um, the first one we did was just, um, you know, we did some kind of back of the napkin uh, math just to make sure we thought it would be a good investment. 
Um, but um, it really doesn't cost as much to do as you would think. Uh, so the first one we did, um, we just decided we're going to try it because the cost wasn't, you know, as substantial as we thought it would have been. Um, and uh, it worked well. We were able to track it. And we decided, well, heck, we're going to do it again. Um, so that was more of a, um, you know, um, trial and error kind of approach rather than a, you know, methodical pro forma approach like the panels. And sometimes that's what you have to do because yep. the, the numbers aren't always available. <laughs> that's right. You go with your gut. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, we mentioned and briefly touched on you flying, being a pilot. Uh, how did that become a hobby and uh, what impact has it had on your life? Yeah, man. So um Always wanted to fly when I was a little kid. I always had, uh, you know, your model airplanes that were remote controlled. And um, I remember, uh, you know, when I was probably in you know, second or third grade, just driving down the highway and saw this little plane flying in the sky. And uh, I was riding with my dad. And I said, Dad, what is that thing? He said, well, it's a model plane. And I'd never seen one before. And um, from that point forward, you know, I always had model planes, and I was always playing around with them and the engines and so forth. And I always wanted to fly. Um, when I was in high school and college and had to study, um, a lot of times I would just park at the airport, watch airplanes and learn about them. And, uh, you know, once in a while I'd get a little bit nosy and I'd pop in the hangar and talk to pilots and meet people. And um, I always knew I wanted to fly. So when I was in college, um, I just decided to go for it. Um, so I went to St. Louis University. I wasn't part of their Parks College aviation program, and I was a business major. Um, so I just kind of did it on my own and found a flight instructor and learned how to fly at uh, Downtown Airport, which is the Parks College Airport, um, about 22 years ago. And I uh, got my private pilot's license and then kind of along the way got my instrument rating. So you can fly through clouds and weather um, without visual reference to what's outside. You have to fly the plane solely by looking at your panel and your uh, instruments. Um, and I got my commercial uh, rating um, along the way. And um, it's just been very cool to do. Um, it's kind of your ultimate freedom to be able to go to the airport, get in a plane and fly anywhere you want to. Um, and, um, you know, it's also been, you know, just to translate it to real estate a little bit, when you're flying an airplane, you always have to stay ahead of the plane. So even before you take off, you have to plan your flight. You have to look at the weather, your departure, your destination. Um, will there be icing? You know, what do the winds look like? What's the best altitude to fly at? Because winds are, you know, um, faster and slower at different altitudes. So, um, from the planning perspective, you always want to stay ahead of your airplane. And then when you're in the air, um, you know, you have to uh, anticipate the uh, conditions where you're landing at your destination. And um, you want to have your frequencies set before you need them. And you always want to think ahead. Uh, so translating that to real estate, you always want to think ahead. You know, you always want to think about you know, um, not just, you know, this year, but what's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? What do you think this building, you know, if we purchased it, you know, could do over the long term, not just, you know, the next two years when interest rates are very low? Um, can it sustain, you know, higher debt service or lower debt service? Um, you know, just stress test it. Um, so aviation for me has been great. 
um, for a lot of reasons. And uh, I fly for this group called Angel Flight. So we transport uh, patients from point A to point B. Um, it's a lot of small town, more rural pickups going up to bigger airports, Mayo Clinic and so forth. And uh, my youngest patient was six months old and my oldest patient was probably mid 80s. So you get to, you know, like real estate, you get to touch a lot of different businesses and, and learn about different ways of operating businesses. Same thing with this. I mean, you meet so many different people with so many different needs um, that it's just a good reality check. Uh, and it's a way to kind of combine my passion for aviation with giving back a little bit. Thanks for sharing. I never would have thought that there were similarities between aviation and real estate, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We like to end the show with uh, what we call a hole-in-one, which would just be your greatest piece of advice for someone that they can implement today either in either their life or business. Uh, you've given us a lot of great advice, but if you have anything else left in the tank, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. You know, I think the number one would be to be patient. Um, and it's hard for me to be patient. Uh, it's hard for a lot of people to be patient, but especially in real estate, you know, right now is a great example. We're in a time when um, it's very hard to get started in real estate. There's not a lot of real opportunity. It's not the best time to acquire real estate uh, because of interest rate, because of um, seller expectations uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, so now, you know, for me is a time to be very patient. Um, two years ago, we were very aggressive. Um, we did a lot of 1031 exchanges and we just... Um, re-leveraged and continued to build a portfolio. But uh, patience always pays. And, um, you know, one thing about real estate is um, it's a game of patience. You know, it's not an overnight uh, thing. You know, you have to build it slowly. Uh, you have to learn how to raise capital. And you have to learn how to uh, strike when the iron's hot but not be greedy. And um, so I think patience would be the biggest one. That's a great piece of advice, and uh, I've been trying my best to be patient over the last, uh, call it 16 months or so, but uh, it does get challenging at times, so I, I appreciate the reminder, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do as well. Where can me people learn more about you or your company? Yeah, so the um, uh, name of the company is Skyline Commercial Real Estate. Uh, the website is uh, skylinemore.com um, or tourskyline.com. And um, I'm always available. And um, uh, really, I think what we're looking for right now is just to continue to build um, investor relationships um, so that when things do make sense, uh, which probably isn't too far off from today, hopefully, that we just continue to facilitate the growth and um, you know, help people diversify outside of the stock market. John, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. You got it. Great to be here. Thanks, Raj. If you're a high quality company interested in reaching the high performing audience of Country Club Conversations, let's see how we can work together. To explore sponsorship opportunities, email advertising at storyboardliving.com. That's advertising at storyboardliving.com. <laughs>